Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host, Chris Caraggio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Caraggio. A reminder, today's episode is brought to you by Elsevier. As misinformation multiplies, giving your clinicians easy access to the most trusted, current, evidence-based information is more important than ever. Elsevier's Clinical Key can help. Download the executive brief at trustclinicalkey.com. Okay. Uh, we are uh, very, very pleased and honored to have as our guest. Let me introduce him, read his bio, then we'll get into the conversation. Mr. Rick Pollock, president and CEO of the American Hospital Association. Rick started his career as a legislative aide on Capitol Hill, working for Representative Dave Obie from Wisconsin, who served on the House Appropriations Committee. While in Congressman Obie's office, he learned the intricacies of the legislative process and policymaking. Now, Rick has spent more than three decades with the American Hospital Association after leading its Washington, D.C. office and guiding its legislative advocacy and public policy activities for more than 20 years. Rick was tapped in 2015 as the AHA's president and CEO. He's passionate about assisting America's hospitals and health systems as they care for patients and communities, and has been a leader in efforts to expand health care coverage overall for everyone. Now, Rick received his bachelor's degree in political science and communications from the State University of New York's College of Cortland and his master's degree in public administration from American University in Washington, D.C. And Rick, obviously, the hospital field is certainly fortunate to have somebody with all your experience and skill at the helm of this you know, greatest public health care crisis of our lifetime. So we know you're busy. We want to welcome you into the Healthcare Executive Podcast. We really appreciate your time. Chris, uh, thanks very much for having me. And thank you, AHA, uh, ACHE. It's great to be with all of you. Definitely, definitely. Okay, let's get into it. I know AHA uh, uses what is, what is called the three R's as a framework for for describing how hospitals need to overcome things and issues, obviously, in this pandemic. Just just for, for everyone's sake, what are the three R's? Uh, yeah, I'd be glad to share that with you, uh, Chris. And uh, if I can just set a little context right up front, you know, uh, we've reached the one-year mark of dealing with the pandemic. It's taken a half a million lives. Um, and, uh, you know, we all, I think, lost, uh, certainly mourn the loss of these individuals, a uh, toll that has left gaping holes in the lives of those left behind. And while the slope continues to uh, decrease somewhat, and hospitalizations and deaths are now beginning to go down, we're still at a very dangerous level. And, uh, you know, it's a concern that many of our patients still reluctant to seek needed medical services, uh, some of which has demonstrated a decline in life expectancy in this country. But, you know, in the midst of this, Chris, uh, for more than a year, the men and women of America's hospitals and health systems have served patients on the front lines. Uh, they've been battling wave after wave of virus and exhaustion in caring for millions of Americans. And, you know, they, they recently had uh, that J.P. Morgan Congress uh, conference that many attend. And Dan Michelson, who's the CEO of Strata Decision Technology, uh, observed that hospitals are simply too vital to fail. And he asked the question, what will, what will we have done without them? And he went on to say that when our nation needed us most and when it faced 
perhaps its most challenging moment in the history of healthcare, our nation's hospitals and health systems stepped up heroically and performed miraculously. Chris, I couldn't have said it better myself. So I just want to say right at the outset to the ACHE, that uh, to all the caregivers, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the pharmacists, to those who clean the rooms and bring the food and secure the facilities, we want to convey our gratitude for their hard work and dedication in protecting patients and caring for communities. And, you know, it's been a team effort from the uh, corner office to the back office to the boardroom. Uh, uh, ACHE, you're all healthcare heroes. Now, to your question, uh, the three R's. Um, uh, the three R's really relate to COVID, and uh, the first R has been relief, and that has been our efforts over the past year to seek relief in the form of regulatory waivers to allow executives to respond in a quick and decisive manner to the situation. Uh, the second piece of relief has been with regard to uh, financial relief. And uh, there have been five COVID relief bills passed. We're working on a sixth as we speak. And uh, it's provided billions of dollars in relief. So that's the first R for COVID relief. The second is recovery. Uh, and it's meeting the challenge of needing to be ready for any emergency any surge or spike, but at the same time being COVID safe uh, so that we can continue to care for the sick, the injured and keep people healthy and oh, by the way, remain financially viable. Striking that balance around recovery, that's the second R. Third R is rebuilding. Uh, you know, what do we, what have we learned from this experience? When we step back, what do we reevaluate? What do we reboot? And what do we reimagine? in terms of trying to create a uh, better, uh, better healthcare system. Uh, that's what the three R's are about. Okay, so let's focus on that third R, the rebuilding and reimagining. Um, what, is that gonna, what is that gonna look like in your expert opinion when we're talking about the healthcare system and you know, what will change down the road because of all this? Well, one of the things that we've seen and uh, is pretty clear is that hospitals are uh, indisputable trusted partner when it comes to taking care of America. But some of the things we're gonna see that uh, need to change. Uh, public health. I think that um, what we have seen is many hospitals and health systems have stepped into the gap and they have fulfilled the public health role. What is the new intersection between hospitals and uh, their role versus the traditional public health structure. And by the way, as we've seen, the traditional public health structure has been severely underfunded and we've got to rebuild that. Um, we're also gonna see, I think, a new era of emergency readiness. Uh, it's clear that the stockpiles didn't work. It's clear that we never had the capability to do the kind of contract tracing that's necessary for this pandemic or the next one. Another thing in rebuilding, I think we've all seen a greater awareness around health disparities and the need to tackle those. That's going to be part of rebuilding. Rethinking the healthcare supply chain. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever again find ourselves in a situation, or we shouldn't, of depending upon one particular country uh, for any type of uh, supplies or equipment particularly PPE. When it comes to hospital operations, uh, I think that uh, what the uh, pandemic has shown is that we uh, need to think about new models and alternative sites of care, new staffing models to support those alternative sites of care, whether it was for testing or vaccines or now to better able to take care of 
people at home. When it comes to physical plant, uh, going to need more swing space, more adaptability. Those are the kinds of things that I think will change. When it comes to the delivery system, one of the things that we have to consider here is that um, uh, the pandemic is going to expose the fragmented nature of the delivery system. We're going to have to deal with long haulers, as they call them, that have chronic conditions. We're going to have to deal with the fact that uh, financial viability was very much at risk when non-emergent services are shut down. We're going to have to deal with uh, care deferred um, during the periods in which people were hesitant to come back to care. So what does that all mean? It means telehealth, that cat's out of the bag, uh, virtual visits. Uh, while I can't replace everything, we're going to see more and more of that. We're going to see more remote patient monitoring. We're going to see more movement of care uh, from inpatient to outpatient, if not to retail. There's going to be a race for providing care in the home and a movement toward alternative payment methods that support these different uh, delivery mechanisms. Another thing that I think that we'll probably see is more healthcare system consolidation. I think we've seen the value of health systems and systemness demonstrated in the ability to move resources around, whether they be physical resources in terms of equipment and supplies or human resources in terms of healthcare person power. So those are the types of things that I think uh, we have to consider in the context of rebuilding. Definitely. Such a detailed answer, Rick, about about just that, because everyone's always asking, you know, what's what's it going to look like on the other side post pandemic? So thank you so much for that for that clear, distinct answer of what needs to rebuild and what it's going to look like post pandemic. OK, let's talk about um, the plus three component to uh, AHA strategy when we're talking about the future it has to do with equity, uh, workforce resilience and overall behavioral health. How, where do these issues fit into to to rebuilding and, and, and overall building a better health system? Well, you know, uh, you hit it already. I mean, you hit the big three. Uh, and we kind of refer to uh, our strategic plan revolving around the three R's that we talked about and then the big three. And the big three are three challenges that we had before COVID uh, that just became more challenging. And you just mentioned it. It's the workforce and resiliency and the need to ensure that we have uh, the appropriate um, mechanisms in place to care and support for our own teams and to leverage public policy uh, so that we can be more effective in how we work, uh, whether it's promoting team-based care, licensure reciprocity, increasing resources to um, have more people. Uh, so that's one thing. When it comes to the issue of behavioral health, um, clearly uh, that has become more challenging and we just have to work harder to find ways to coordinate behavioral health services with physical health services, need to more vigorously enforce um, the parity laws that treat mental health and um, physical health in the same way. Uh, we need to think more about uh, training at the uh, at the at the basic level, uh, because we'll never have enough specialists to take care of the people that have uh, issues related to behavioral health. Um, all primary care providers, uh, nurses, and doctors need to have uh, more intense training in dealing with behavioral health issues. 
Um, we need to deal with a whole variety of things in that regard. And then health equity. Um, you know, there, there's the moral imperative to do the right thing uh, for sure. And uh, then there's the business case for health equity in terms of being more attentive to cultural competencies. You know, we'll never uh, deal with some of the issues with regard to health equity unless uh, we understand and deal with the issues of disparity. So those are the big three. And boy, we could drill down a lot into each of those three even further. Got it. Got it. But thanks for pointing all that out. We appreciate it. Hey, just a reminder to our listeners that this episode is brought to you by Elsevier. As misinformation multiplies, giving your clinicians easy access to the most trusted, current, evidence-based information is more important than ever. Elsevier's Clinical Key can help. Download the executive brief at trustclinicalkey.com. Okay, Rick, we, we are recording this early March 2021. President Biden's been in office right around six weeks or so. What, what are the administration's top priorities when it comes to health care, and are you encouraged so far? Uh you know, number one, uh, their priority is setting up a government. You know, we still don't have an HHS secretary in place. Uh, he'll, his confirmation vote's working its way through the committee process this week. Uh, so really, uh, you know, having uh, HHS uh, secretary and that whole structure put in place, that's certainly a top priority. The second one, we've already seen them begin to move on, and that's unwinding things that the Trump administration did in terms of executive actions. Uh, you know, they put a lot of restrictions. The Trump administration did that is on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we already see the Biden administration promoting enrollment, funding navigators, um, and uh, dealing with some of the regulations that uh, ultimately um, uh, made it easier for certain skimpy plans to qualify for uh, for the um, ACA uh, public exchanges. Um, also seeing them unwind other uh, rules, some by executive action, the public charge rule that uh, created barriers for people to take advantage of Medicaid because uh, they might be, uh, it might be held against them for uh, achieving citizenship. You know, that's something that's being unwound. Medicaid work requirements, that's something uh, that's certainly being unwound. So uh, reeling back the things where the Trump administration went in a different direction, that's been a priority. COVID is the number one priority, and we share that, and that's what encourages us. Uh, and let's face it, for President Biden, that's a legacy issue. Uh, if that isn't dealt with effectively over the next 18 months, um, that uh, will, uh, you know, uh, be real problematic for the whole Biden administration. And then coverage expansions. Um, you know, that's something that's high on the list. We're already seeing that emerge in the COVID relief bill uh, that's working its way through the Congress as we speak. So, yeah, I am encouraged. I'm encouraged because uh, we support unwinding some of those previous executive actions. Uh, I'm encouraged because we share the top priority of the Biden administration, and that's winning the battle against COVID. And I'm encouraged because uh, we uh, want to see those coverage expansions. And uh, I'm encouraged that uh, he's committed, as we are, to building on the Affordable Care Act as a good foundation uh, to continue to both expand coverage and improve the delivery system. You mentioned the uh the latest COVID relief bill, which is expected to, to pass soon. Um, what piece, uh, you, you mentioned it, but what pieces of the bill, I guess for you, 
do you look at as possibly having the greatest impact when, when, we're, when it comes to hospitals, when it comes to health systems? Well, you know, I'll divide that into, you know, two categories because um, there, there are things that are in the bill um, that are very important to the whole healthcare system. And then there are things uh, that were not in the Biden plan and uh, are not in the House passed version that we're working to get into the Senate version. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that the increased money in the uh, House version that passed the House uh, for vaccination and testing, that's all good. There's like $80 billion in there for that. Um, the coverage expansions I mentioned earlier with regard to Medicaid and the expansion of subsidies in the health insurance marketplaces, the subsidies for COBRA, federal subsidies for people that lose their jobs uh, so they can continue coverage. That's all good. That's all in the House bill. We support all of that. Um, the uh, additional assistance under the rural health grants and support for child care and families, uh, that's all good. We, we think that's all good. That's in the House bill. But again, there are things that weren't included in the House bill that weren't included in the Biden plan that we're disappointed weren't in there. And we're working to get those into the Senate plan. Those things more directly affect hospitals. The provider relief fund, uh, where over $170 billion had been dedicated over the last year, there is no replenishment of that fund. Uh, we are working uh, to get another $35 billion included. The sequester, the Medicare sequester that we got put on ice for the last year, that 2% cut that's automatic, that's going to expire at the end of March. We want to get that extended. And then the loans uh, or accelerated payment that was provided to us, uh, we'd like to get that uh, turned into loan forgiveness. That's not in the plan. Uh, so those are the three uh, that we're trying to get in the mix as the Senate begins to look at their plan right now. Rick, how confident are you that, that you'll get all the those three or maybe two of the three as we as we as we move along to seeing it passed overall well i got to be candid it's it's an uphill fight and it's a challenge um uh i am confident that uh we've got good support in fact the 35 billion dollars uh passed as an amendment to the budget resolution in a nine binding way led by senator joe manchin of west virginia uh, there is support there for additional funds into the provider relief fund, and I'm hopeful that uh, we can uh, get that done, and we're working real hard on those other provisions. But, you know, it's a challenge because over the past year, um, Congress did, in fact, provide a lot of funding. Uh, you know, between the $175 billion in emergency relief and another $50 or $60 billion in policy changes, you know, there's a perception out there that uh, we were already um, uh, shall we say, taken care of. We think that there's a lot more to be done as we play a lead role in vaccinations and on the front lines. I think the other thing is uh, something, Chris, that we have to recognize is the political system that we have in this country. They tend to only respond to short-term emergencies. When there's an emergency, they tend to respond. Right now, people see a downward slope, so they don't see uh, the emergency the way we saw it 
uh, roughly a year ago. And that clouds things when there are other priorities. And then the last challenge we face has to do with this reconciliation process, very complicated process. It involves all sorts of parliamentary gymnastics. But the three things that uh, we're trying to include run into these hurdles as to what you can include in a so-called reconciliation bill, which is a fast track method that they use to avoid a filibuster in the Senate to allow it to pass with 50 rather than 60 votes. You probably heard the debate on minimum wage where the parliamentarian ruled uh, that the minimum wage increase couldn't go in a reconciliation bill. We have similar issues that get way technical uh, that I'd be glad to explain, but I know we don't have the time uh, that prevent uh, present hurdles for us in this process as well. But we're working it. We're working it hard. We've had advocacy days. We have a TB campaign going. We unveiled new studies showing that we're losing between 53 and $100 billion uh, this year as a result of taking care and preparing for COVID. That's on top of $300 billion we lost last year. Finally, and great. Thank you for that. You definitely are working it. So we'll, we'll see how it, how it plays out here in the future, in the near future. Okay, uh, Rick, you're going to be joining us in a few weeks for ACHE's 2021 Congress on Healthcare Leadership. More than 7,000 hospital and health system executives are expected to join for this virtual event. What would you advise maybe are the top leadership skills the field is going to need to drive everything that we've talked about over the last 20 minutes to a half hour and see this through that third R, that rebuilding? Well, you know, it, the, the biggest challenge is the balance, striking the balance between having to deal with the immediate and the urgent uh, and being prepared to also concentrate on what you have to do to meet the challenges of the future. You know, the immediate and the urgent, uh, where we have a responsibility for providing essential public services that are life-saving uh, and ensuring that our frontline staff have the equipment and, and uh, the resources uh, to deal with uh, uh, the situation, uh, that's immediate. And trying to deal with the changing signals that we get from the government and the lack of commercial payers' willingness to step up to the plate and help, uh, that is something that is critical. But at the same time that we're dealing with these immediate issues, we have to keep our eye on the long-term issues so that we can uh, stay viable to serve our communities and so that we can redefine the H, you know, that H, that hospital sign, that building uh, has proven to be a trusted partner and that's indispensable, but at the same time, we need to begin to reach out into the community and to provide care in different ways, whether it's in the home or in uh, outpatient clinics or in other sites so that we're more accessible to patients. Uh, so it's balancing the immediate, but preparing for the long-term. I think that that's the biggest leadership challenge we've got right now. You know, well said. Thank you so much, Rick, for this conversation and all the insight. We really appreciate it. 
happy to be with you and look forward to being uh, at the Congress in a couple of weeks. I wanted to say that. So as Rick just said, you're going to hear more from him, the president and CEO of the American Hospital Association at the Congress on Healthcare Leadership, March 22nd through the 25th. Uh, learn more and register at ACHE.org slash Congress. One final note for our listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by Elsevier. As misinformation multiplies, giving your clinicians easy access to the most trusted current evidence-based information is more important than ever. Elsevier's Clinical Key can help. Download the executive brief at trustclinicalkey.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Healthcare Executive Podcast. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ACHE.org.